guess what? We're back! We took a little hiatus, but we're revving back up just in time to talk about some major election results. Everything from major political races to a national mullet contest. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, does the balance of power in the U.S. House run through the Hudson Valley? If there was a surprise in the results, I would have to say that um, one of the most sweeping and impactful of them is the strength of Republicans in toss-up races, especially in the Hudson Valley. A Stewart's ice cream flavor won a prestigious Best Flavor Award at the World Dairy Expo this year. We'll talk to Stewart's president and CEO, Gary Dake, about what it takes to produce a winning flavor. Now, the, that peanut butter and peanut in an ice cream gives you a little bit of salt, which is a flavor enhancer. At the same time, by having the peanut butter cups, you get just a little bit of texture. And we'll hear from a Saratoga County man whose carefully crafted coiffure dominated this year's USA Mullet Championships. I think the mullet breeds confidence in people who wear the mullet. Like I say, you got to have rocks if you want to grow the locks, and it, it does take a certain type of person to do that. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Tuesday was Election Day across the United States, and several key congressional battleground races played out nationwide. However, here in New York, races found themselves among the most hotly contested, with tighter-than-expected results that have implications for the balance of power in the state and nation. I'm going to turn it over now to Times Union editor Casey Seiler for a breakdown of the results. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor-in-chief of the Times Union, and here to talk politics uh, less than, uh, I guess, 18 hours or so after the polls close. I'm happy to be joined by Philip Pantuso, who is uh, the editor of our Hudson Valley expansion team, and Josh Solomon from the Times Union's outstanding Capitol Bureau. Gentlemen, you were up uh, very late last night. Thank you for all of the good work. Uh, sorry to make you be eloquent the day after, but here we go. So, Philip, I want to talk with you because if there was a surprise in the results, I would have to say that um, one of the most sweeping and impactful of them is the strength of Republicans in toss-up races, especially in the Hudson Valley. Can you unpack some of those for us? Yeah, so there were three congressional seats, all held by Democrats across the Hudson Valley, and they were all either toss-ups or leaning slightly to the Democrats, and the Republicans flipped two of those. I think probably the headliner is downstate, where first-term state assemblyman Mike Lawler upset uh, the five-time U.S. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney. We need more data to really know why the upset occurred, but Lawler ran on 
public safety and bread and butter economic issues and seemed to sort of successfully paint Maloney as someone who uh, supported cash bail. And despite Maloney's efforts to label Lawler as MAGA Mike, I think he successfully distanced himself from former President Trump. There was a lot of outside spending that poured into that race, uh, including the combined $8 million from the Congressional Leadership Fund and the National Republican Congressional Committee. Really quickly, I just wanted to note that one of the reasons that Maloney had such a target on his back and one of the reasons that uh, not to redo another hunting metaphor that Republicans are happy to bag him as a trophy is because he is a prime strategist of the Democrats in the House, their their political efforts, right? That's right. Yeah, he's the chair of the Democrats uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. It's a symbolic victory for sure. Um, he, I believe, according to a statement from the National Republican Congressional Committee, uh, Maloney is the first incumbent DCCC chair to lose since 1980. So uh, yeah, a big trophy for the Republicans there. And Lawler, you know, has had success with this type of campaign before. When he won his assembly seat in 2020, he did so by defeating a seven-term Democratic Assemblywoman, Ellen Jaffe. So moving on to the 18th district, where Pat Ryan, the Democrat, was taking on Colin Schmidt, another state assemblyman, Schmidt conceded that race early, and I do mean early, on Wednesday morning in a call to to Pat Ryan, and he released a statement shortly thereafter. The dynamics in that race, um, from a distance anyway, are fairly similar to the race we were just talking about in the 17th Congressional District. Schmidt is a two-term state assemblyman, uh, and he's running against an incumbent U.S. Representative and Pat Ryan, who, of course, won the special election in August to fill out the remainder of Antonio Delgado's term after he uh, got bumped up to lieutenant governor. I think what really made a difference, though, in this race is that, frankly, Ryan is just a newer candidate and had less baggage and people just Voters in the, in the district just like him better than I think voters in Maloney's district. Another thing worth noting, I think, circling back to Maloney, is that he's been in the U.S. Congress representing the 18th district. After the redistricting process earlier this year, he elected to run in the 17th, which, to be fair, is where he lives. But that created a little bit of criticism from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party He's admitted since then that he could have handled that better. And then finally, uh, at least looking at the Hudson Valley congressional races, the the matchup between uh, the Democrat Josh Riley and Mark Molinaro, who had run against Pat Ryan for the special election in the pre-redistricting race that was coincident to our second primary. And I'm confusing myself just offering this description but Molinero appears to have pulled that out. That has been called, but it's another absolutely razor thin margin, 51-49 basically. Right. So he, he he decided to run in, in that race after losing the special election, um, but winning the primary over the summer for NY19. He is, of course, the Dutchess County executive, or he served as the Dutchess County executive since 2012 and uh, was the 2018 GOP nominee for governor. That was a race that I think many expected Riley to win. 
most election forecasters had that one as likely Democrat, but Molinar was helped, I think, by his name recognition and a pretty strong turnout on election day. Josh Solomon, uh, for something you must have done bad in a past life, you have been tasked with covering the, the course of redistricting, which ended up having significant impact on many of these congressional races, just about every congressional race across the state. And you're already seeing the kind of after action analysis, noting that the way that redistricting was handled, which basically uh, back in 2014, um, lawmakers and Andrew Cuomo settled on what was really kind of a phony reform, the creation of an independent uh, commission that was that was sort of designed to become deadlocked or so so it appeared which, of course, in this latest round of redistricting became deadlocked. And so Democrats, who now totally control the legislature, were given the power to draw maps as they saw fit. Those maps were tossed out, ultimately, by the state court of appeals, leading to a special master who was appointed by, you know, a fairly conservative judge to draw those districts in a a sort of take it or leave it way. Is that analysis wrong in any particular fashion, or was this just a red, if not a red wave, at least sort of a a midterm red tide that washed out a number of these um, of these Democratic candidates? I think it's tough to make sense of anything related to redistricting, and I'll just quickly <laughs> note that true redistricting is not done. We want to say it's done, but it's not done. Assembly maps will be redrawn over the course of the next year maybe by the redistricting commission, maybe by the legislature, or maybe by a special master. And we could end up with a special election for assembly races next year. Probably not, but we could. So dust hasn't settled on that. So who knows? But in terms of this election cycle, yes, on the congressional side, we saw that the maps that the special master drew and and were validated as constitutional by the court led to more Republicans winning. But on the state Senate side, which also got the short end of the stick on its maps, they may even still hold on to their supermajority when most pundits said they would fall well short of that. And the only place that they really lost a lot was on Long Island, where districts were redrawn, but also energy from the top of the ticket with Congressman Zeldin pulled a lot there. So I, I would kind of pause and say, we could draw that conclusion isolated, saying redistricting made it much more competitive districts for Congress that then led to you know a red wave in the Hudson Valley. But that argument doesn't hold true when you look at the state Senate side. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about the top of the ticket and the gubernatorial race, which, true to much of the prognostication, ended up being the tightest gubernatorial contest since 1994, when George Pataki stunned many by besting Governor Mario Cuomo. Uh, What went right for Kathy Hochul and what went wrong for Lee Zeldin? What went right and what went wrong for, for Hochul, you could argue is the same thing, that the conversation around crime really hit a crescendo coming into the final stretch of the race from 17 plus million dollars of, of TV ads that pro Zeldin super PACs uh, flooded the markets with 
that argument that he had been making for a year and a half on the campaign trail, that the state's criminal justice policies under quote unquote one party rule were ruining New York state and therefore we needed to quote, save our state. That started apparently to resonate with voters, especially on this message of whether or not you feel safe in your community. But at the same rate, as polls tightened and as the media started alerting folks that this race was very competitive, the Democratic Party brought out their heavy hitters. Former President Bill Clinton came, uh, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden. I mean, you had all the stops that they could pull out, came to New York in untraditional fashion and ultimately helped drive turnout, especially in New York City, which helped bail out Hochul on her end of the ticket. So uh, here's a, a final question, and it's sort of a jump ball to both of you looking at kind of the, the statewide results, you know, whether it's Republican strength in the congressional races or the continued Republican inability to win statewide. If you are uh, a leader of the state GOP looking at Tuesday night's results, do you stick with the playbook that you use this year and which is very similar to what has been used in past years? Or do you think about a reset? And I'm asking you to do sort of unpaid political consulting for Republicans, but I'll just throw it out there. I, I would just uh, grab that jump ball for a moment and, and say that while Democrats have started to come out and progressive groups have come out, Working Families Party have come out and said, this is what this race means. Republicans have been quiet so far. So I think they're still trying to figure out what that message was. But, you know, 24 hours ago, Senator Rob Orth, the, the Republican minority leader, tweeted out, you know, we've seen the quality of life in New York State worsen under one party rule. It's time to restore economic freedom and public safety to our state. Voters have a choice tomorrow. Well, voters ultimately sided with Democrats yesterday on the, the legislature and the governor's side of things. So we're still waiting to find out how Senator Ort and other Republicans view this and what their path forward is. But one important quick point on it is the Republican Party chairman in the state, Nick Langworthy, was elected to Congress yesterday. There's no indication that he's going to leave that position as party chairman, but he will split his duties in D.C. So maybe that will open up the door for uh, a different point of view. Philip, if, if you want to take that ball for a second, go ahead. I don't have too much to add to, to Josh's analysis there other than, you know, we may be getting a little bit of a preview from what about what the messaging might be from the Republicans who were successful here in the Hudson Valley, Molinaro in his victory speech last night touted his ability to work across the aisle and, and talked about um, uh, how he would do that now in the Congress and Lawler uh, during his campaign also decried one party rule. All right. Well, uh, to Josh Solomon and Philip Pantuso, thanks again for all the good work and thank you for all the good day after analysis. Please keep it coming. Head on over to timesunion.com for a full rundown of election results and reactions. You can learn more about all of the topics and issues we discuss on this podcast there, too. All right, we're going to switch gears here from hot-button politics to something a little cooler. Ice cream! 
This year, Stewart's Shops earned top honors at the World Dairy Expo for its popular peanut butter pandemonium ice cream flavor. The Times Union's Christy Gustafson Barletti recently sat down with Stewart's president and CEO Gary Dake to talk about this delicious victory. So first I want you to talk to me about what exactly is the World Dairy Expo and what does it mean to win? I know you won in a few categories, but the number one category was this one kind of ice cream. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure, the, the World Dairy Expo is held every year absent the pandemic year of 2020 out in Wisconsin. And while the name says World Dairy Expo, it's really an opportunity for all of North America uh, to be able to compete as to who has the best dairy products. And um, we were very honored this year to uh, get a first, a second, and two third place awards with, uh, as you alluded to, peanut butter pandemonium coming in first in the peanut butter flavored ice creams category, which was a tremendous honor that we're really thrilled with. Well, you know what I remember? We did a 20 Things You Don't Know About Me on you a couple of years ago. And if I remember correctly, your go-to snack was a hard roll with peanut butter or butter. So you're a peanut butter guy. So you had to be excited that peanut butter pandemonium won. Absolutely. And peanut butter pandemonium got a third last year. And to go up to number one, it's also our best selling flavor. The funniest thing that I don't think most people remember, even in my own organization, is that started as just a seasonal flavor at the uh, the cone counter. It was just one that we just said, oh, let's give it a try. It was a pretty good try because it uh, never got knocked out of the lineup and is now both the number one seller and won a gold medal at the World Dairy Expo. Tell us about what's in it. What makes up peanut butter pandemonium the flavor? Peanut butter pandemonium is a vanilla ice cream with peanut butter cups and a peanut butter swirl. So if you like peanut butter, it is a go-to flavor for you. All right. So peanut butter pandemonium was third last year, moved to first this year. What do you think allowed it to jump those two slots to get into first place? You know, that's hard to tell. I, I, I've never been to the awards. I don't know exactly how they judge. I'm pretty sure that it is mostly just a sensory evaluation of how does it taste, you know, as opposed to the milk awards at the state fair, which we also won this year, which is a lot of bacteriology and, and things like that. It could be a change in competition. It could just be the the mood that the judges were in, because let's face it, almost every ice cream is a good ice cream. So the, the difference between a great ice cream and a good ice cream is about this much. So, I mean, I, I get to credit a little bit to some some good luck. And um, certainly we make a great ice cream, all kinds of great ice creams. But, you know, we were able to just get it over the top this year. So I'm going to tap my memory and call you out on something because okay. you said every ice cream is a good ice cream. But I do remember you sharing your least favorite flavor with us. And that was cotton candy. So I'm guessing you don't expect to see cotton candy in the top three or four, or maybe because that's just your personal preference. That's clearly just my personal preference because cotton candy also sells well. And that's what's great about ice cream. And it's, you know, the luxury we have of having our roots be in ice cream. The fact that you can have dozens of flavors available at any one time means that you always have somebody's favorite ice cream. And people like me that don't like super sweet ice creams and kid ice creams, I have plenty of flavors to choose from. But at the same time, you know, my granddaughter can go in there and have something that's, you know, super sweet that I would never choose to eat. And she can be perfectly happy, too. 
I hear you on that. My kids choose the cotton candy with the rainbow sprinkles and any other sweet toppings you have on the tray there because, hey, that's that's the kids with the sweet tooth. Tell me a little bit about what you like about peanut butter pandemonium. You told us what was in it, but what is it that you most like about it besides, obviously, peanut butter, which is one of the world's best foods? You know, you know one of the things that's nice with any peanut butter flavor or even a lot of the nut flavors is you've got a combination of sweet and salty in there. Now that peanut butter and peanut in an ice cream gives you a little bit of salt, which is a flavor enhancer. At the same time, by having the peanut butter cups, you get just a little bit of texture without it being quite as hard as having a nut in there. So I, I think the combination of a variety of sweet and salty, as well as a little bit of texture, and so it's not 100% smooth. Um, I think that that variation, plus obviously just great flavors, um, you know, really is what, what makes it a successful flavor. I mean, a plain vanilla ice cream is delicious. A plain chocolate ice cream is delicious. But when you can put something in it that, that gives it a little bit of contrast, I think makes it a more interesting flavor. Hey, I'm with you. My, my favorite of all times that you had was the chocolate sea turtle, which is now not there. Great flavor. So we got a second place in the mint category, a silver medal with mint cookie crumble. And that's got the same thing, a nice mint flavor. But by having that uh, chocolate cookie piece in there, cookie piece ripple, it gives you just enough texture and enough variation that it's not just, oh, this is nice mint and chocolate flavor. You got texture as well as people don't think about when they're eating ice cream, so they're just enjoying it. But how much texture is too much? We did a flavor years ago with uh, uh, Rice Krispie uh, treat pieces in it. Sounded like a great flavor. We loved it. But we ended up, I think, buying a bunch of dentist's boats because the, the, <laughs> the piece was too hard. We ended up repairing an awful lot of teeth because that Rice Krispie treat froze up too hard. And there was a little too much texture difference in there. It was really tough. So that one didn't come back. That's like when you put gummy bears or gummy worms. Again, a kid thing on top of ice cream. It gets so hard you can't chew it. I almost see that happening with the little Rice Krispie treat pieces. Yeah, we, we did an experimental flavor with um, Skittles and they just got to be like, you know, little <laughs> rocks in there. You just could not eat them. <laughs> like jaw breaking to try to exactly. do. <laughs> All right, so you talked about a couple of flavors that you had that didn't necessarily work out, but I know you're always developing new flavors. We came last year to your um, plant outside of Saratoga Springs. We got to see how the ice cream is made, but also how the flavors are decided. Are you able to give us a little bit of a sneak peek of what we may see in maybe in the spring or the summer? Because I know your fall flavors are already out, but what may be coming down the line in steward shops that's new? You know, I don't have the, the final list for the summer of next year. I do know one thing that we're going to be doing new this year, and it's not really a new flavor, but it's kind of a new concept for us. We're going to take our peppermint stick ice cream that we've always sold in half gallons, and that's going to be available at the cone counter for use in a candy cane milkshake. So oh. a milkshake made with uh, peppermint stick ice cream is going to be a special that we're focusing on uh, this holiday season. And I'm pretty excited about that because, I mean, peppermint stick, again, great flavor, little bit of texture difference. And in a milkshake, and this, this wasn't my idea, I just heard about it a couple of weeks ago. I think that's going to be a, a really great flavor to have out there for the holidays. Because even when it gets cold out, it's still a great time to eat ice cream. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In the winter, I'm all about the chocolate milkshake, even in the winter. So I think there's, there's no wrong time of year for ice cream. All right. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Christy.
You can follow Christy at Just Christy on Twitter. After the break, we'll hear the story of a guy from Stillwater who grew an epic mullet and how that mullet was voted best in the country. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. It is time now to talk about the mullet. Well, that's definitely something I never thought I would hear myself say out loud, but here we are. Stillwater resident Scott Salvador decided to quaff his hair in the popular style often described as, quote, business in the front, party in the back. Salvador entered his mullet, nicknamed the Lord's Drapes, into the USA Mullet Championships this year. And he won. His victory was announced on the Today Show. USA main event mullet championships. Your winner is Scott Salvador. Oh, yeah! Times Union reporter Pete DeMola caught up with Salvador and the Lord's Drapes recently to find out more about the championship and get some mullet care tips. Uh, So, Scott, thanks for being with the, the Eagle podcast. Can you tell me about this prestigious honor that you have just won? It is prestigious for sure, in my eyes anyway. I mean, some people might see it as a silly mullet competition, but I uh, I entered a mullet competition online with my wife. Out of 560 online entries, I got into the top 14 of that to enter the top 25 main event for the U.S. Mullet Championships. The top 25 consisted of a couple days of voting, and we took the crown home. So what can you tell us about... Uh, how the voting worked and some of your competitors. I'm looking at the 25 final contestants, and it looks like you're up against some very formidable competition. Uh, Many of these gentlemen have uh, pretty formidable uh, mullets. What can you tell me about uh, about the Lord's Drapes and about some of your foes? Yeah, the uh, so the mullet competition, it's, you know, we're the top 25 mullets in the country. I think it's really opinion-based on who's got the best mullet. So my strategy to to beat my formidable opponents was to have a great name for the mullet. And I didn't want to be too much of a character to take away from the mullet. So I was going for an all natural approach. A lot of guys wear the big sunglasses, but that, you know, have a big beard. A lot of guys, they, you know, that was their strategy was to take away from the mullet a little bit. So I uh, had that going for me for the mullet competition. And my name, the Lord's Drapes was, I'm going to say, I think it was, the best name in the uh, in the competition. So, what were some of the other uh, foes names? You had the uh, the Wisconsin waterfall from a gentleman from yeah. the Badger State. One guy's name it stands out to me. His name's Mark Hollywood Steves. His name was his mullet name was Playboy because it's in the magazines, and I thought that was pretty clever. Another guy's name was Mullet Mania because he looked just like Hulk Hogan. We had another guy from Texas. He was the Texas tailgate. I thought that was a good one as well. So you, uh, after a round of voting, rounds of voting, you took home the championships. It was announced on October 22nd on 
on national TV. Uh, can you tell us about uh, the like how many votes you received and um, why you are now the the mullet crown uh, in America? To get into the top 25, I had to beat 560 people on a Facebook vote. Out of 560, I had to be in the top 100. I think and it was all Facebook likes. So we found out about voting a couple hours before voting stopped out of two days of voting. So we had to, we had a strong Facebook push on there to to get the votes we needed. I think we were like 93rd. So we barely made it into the top 100. When the next round of voting came in, they were only taking the top 14 to enter the top 25 main event for the online vote. So we did three days of campaigning, getting people to like that post on Facebook. I was calling in favors. We made it in to the 14th spot with only about 10 votes to spare. So we just got in by the skin of our teeth. After the top 25 was set, they waited about a week and we voting went through the mulletchamp.com website. So we, they would post something when we would have to share it on our social media to drive people to the mulletchamp website. They would have to put in a, put in their email, put, get a voter code and they were allowed to vote once a day for five days. So when we break it down, how many votes did you receive? How many people are we talking? I got 3,700 votes to win. Gotcha. What does that say, uh, you know, as, you're, as you bask in your, in your fame here, would you say that the mullet is having a moment where growing, as, growing up as a child of the 90s, uh, I'm just a few years older than you, uh, like we discussed in our initial Times Union article, the mullet was viewed as almost like a cousin to the rat tail, right? Yes, very, <laughs> And very now, um, who would have thought, uh, you know, aside from some uh, ironic hipster displays that the mullet would now be in vogue again, is that something you'd agree with? I would say the mullet has definitely made a comeback. You can see, like, younger kids are definitely getting there. It's a big thing in sports. You know, everyone in hockey has a mullet. I think it's making a comeback. I've had this thing for four and a half years now. This is my second mullet, but my first one was four and a half years ago. My barber was like, no way you're doing a mullet, you know. Now, if I, you know, go to his barbershop, he's doing a, a mullet a day. The mullet is coming back. That's uh, Billy Ray Cyrus wrote a song about that. I want my mullet back. He didn't have the rocks to do so, but but I do. Would you say that you're putting um, Stillwater uh, on the map in a positive light? Yes, for sure. The uh, last time Stillwater won a battle this big was when we took out the uh, took out the British Army at the Battle of Saratoga, the turning point of the Revolutionary War. Oh, you're welcome, America, for that. So it's been 200, <laughs> about 235 years since we've had a... Uh, 245 years, wow. Yeah, it's been a while since Stillwater has been uh, recognized on a national level for such a such a courageous, courageous battle. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about uh, the name, the Lord's Drapes? Yeah, the Lord's Drapes. I listen to a comedian podcaster. His name is Theo Vaughn. He does a podcast weekly called This Past Weekend. He would always talk, everyone would call in and talk about his mullet. He was uh, my inspiration to grow my first mullet. And he would always make these little quick, funny one-liners about about his hair. One time he mentioned the Lord's Drapes. And I was like, oh, that's a hilarious name for a mullet. Going down a couple months later, I saw him at a comedy show I had a meet and greet with him at Caroline's in New York City. When I met him, he looked at me. He's like, dang, bro, you got the Lord's drapes. And I was, I was like, I, I guess I could coin this for myself now. He, you know, came from the man himself and he said it to me. So 
as I've been calling it the Lord's Drape since 2019 when I met him. Do you see any avenues in which you can use your stardom, so to speak, uh, winning what, what you described as it could be a silly Molotov contest or it could be something bigger? Do you see this as a way to parlay that into maybe bringing more people on board your faith and using it as a way to kind of present you know, Christianity as in a different light than maybe some people view it as. Right. So I could do two things I, I am praying about is like getting the mullet into a different light. Cause Joe dirt did a lot of, I feel like a lot of damage to mullet subculture. You know, I think of the mullet is one of the only haircuts you could have someone yell across the street and say, yeah, bro, sick mullet. Like to a complete stranger will, will do these things. I don't think, I can't think of another hairstyle that would do that but then there's another other people who are like they've been joe dirted you know they they think of mullets as just you know trailer white trash um and that's not the case i think the mullet breeds confidence in people who wear the mullet like i say you got to have rocks if you want to grow the locks and it it does take a certain type of person to do that and it's you know my mullet is my pride and joy and i think everybody who cuts their hair into a mullet and actually embraces the mullet I believe it's their pride and joy as well. I don't think there's a lot of people that that would say, oh, yeah, you know, it's just my mullet. You know, it takes a lot of work to have a nice-looking mullet. So I would like to get the mullet out of that negative light as well. Another thing I do pray about is um, using this mullet contest and the, the kind of fame I'm getting is to plant, plant seeds in the name of Jesus and always give thanks to Jesus and never lose, lose my humility. Then closing out, uh, we talked a little bit about spiritual maintenance. What can you say about the actual physical maintenance of the mullet? Are there any tips for any listeners who may be uh, now influenced to follow in your footsteps and grow their own mullet? How would you go about doing that if you had to give advice? So my first mullet, I grew my hair out for six months and I walked in, I told my barber six months prior, I said, hey, you're not going to see me for six months. I'm growing my hair out and we're cutting this thing into a mullet. I didn't know anything about having longer hair. I always had short hair. So this thing was uh, was not very well kept. I didn't own a brush. I didn't know what a hair dryer was. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about maintaining the mane. Uh, so my wife hated it. It wasn't very visually appealing. You can think of a mullet as never visually appealing, but this one in particular was definitely not. So I cut that one off for her. The second one grew back. I had short hair the whole time. I just cut the sides every two weeks. So this thing has never been anything but a mullet. And if you're thinking about growing a mullet, if you got to think about it, I don't think uh, you're doing it. I think mullets are for people who are confident and they're just going to do it. So don't think about it. Just you got to you got to jump. You can follow Pete DeMola on Twitter at PM DeMola. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall at Jess underscore on underscore ice on Twitter. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Joshua Solomon, Philip Pantuso, Christy Gustafson-Barletti, and Pete DeMola for their contribution to this episode. 
And stay tuned. We've got a brand new podcast series by The Times Union debuting soon. Here's a taste of what's in store. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Coming soon wherever you listen to podcasts.